Be part of an innovative fine arts community immersed in a top research university. Carnegie Mellon University's School of Music's world-class vocal department constantly works at the cutting edge of musical art forms. CMU performance faculty are creating projects that leverage musicians' skill sets in unique and applicable ways. Students are challenged to think outside the box as they engage with non-traditional performance spaces, collaboration with electronics, and improvisation, alongside a robust program of traditional studies, languages, recitals, and operas. To learn more about Carnegie Mellon University and to apply, visit the link in the show notes of this episode. This is So Lit Songlet, where we reimagine the repertoire by introducing less familiar art songs through sound clips and lively discussion. I'm Ellen Rissinger, a vocal coach who spent much of her career working in major German opera houses, currently on the music faculty of Carnegie Mellon University. I'm Tony Marie Palmertree, a soprano currently performing with such houses as the San Francisco Opera, Chicago Lyric, and the Metropolitan Opera, also teaching privately and at the collegiate level. I'm Zachary Dean Smith, a tenor who just finished my master's studies at Carnegie Mellon University. Together we'll be exploring songs by queer composers that you may or may not have heard of already, showing how they compare to standard works, and giving you a taste of what they sound like. So Lit Songlet is a production of Cincinnati Song Initiative. Songlet, Songlet, reimagining the repertoire. Hello and welcome to season two of So Lit Songlet. <laughs> <laughs> this season is especially lit uh, because we are focusing on music written by queer composers. When Tony and I had decided on this as a topic last year, we, we knew that we needed help. And one of my students came to me needing an independent study. And he has done a lot of the background research into all of these composers for us. So our sort of third host this year will be tenor Zachary Dean Smith. Yes, thank you. Yeah, as you said last year, I wanted to focus. Uh, I needed an independent study to fill a credit that I had accidentally missed. And... One of the things that I wanted to focus on uh, was the idea of queer composers. And I think we talk about a lot of different queer composers. We talk about Barber and Britton um, and to some degree Schubert. So there is a pattern of queerness, I think, in a lot of classical music, but there's certainly a lot of others that we just don't talk about whose music is perfectly valid of study, especially in the field of uh, art song. Exactly. And I would also say especially women in that Yes, in especially. That crowd. We don't talk about, we don't talk nearly as much about queer women um, in the field of uh, art music. And I thought that this podcast would be a really good way to explore some of the people who have been overlooked. Well, thank you, Zach. This is really going to be an exciting season, and we're glad to have your insight on this topic. So for episode one, we're going to focus on the music of Charles Tomlinson Griffiths. So tell me, Zach, I'm sure your wealth of knowledge on this. What can you tell me about him? <laughs> Griffiths is a wonderful composer. I actually, when I was working with Ellen on a uh, recital that we did together, I actually did uh, a selection of his pieces. Tomlinson Griffiths died at a rather young age, unfortunately, um, at I believe 35 
1884 to 1920. Yeah, so he died at a relatively young age, unfortunately, of influenza in the influenza outbreak, which happened in 1920. He was an interesting young man who uh, started off very much sort of interested in the German Romanticism, something that would have been a, a big focus for a lot of composers at the time. But as he started progressing more, he became sort of enamored with the um, Impressionism of the era, especially French Impressionism, which you can definitely hear in some of his pieces. My introduction to Griffiths was The Lament of Ian the Proud. Oh, uh, yeah, that's a great set oh my of gosh, orchestrated right? songs. Oh, my gosh. Right. That is probably his most famous piece. And I would say if you've done any Griffiths, that is probably the one you've done. So we did not focus on that for this episode. What we did focus on was uh, some of his German works. He has quite a few song art songs in German. And I would say they sound so German. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, if you listen to something like Wo lag ich einst, he, it sounds so much like Strauss. Mm -hmm. It gives you just this, this sweeping melody, this sweeping piano part, and it just carries you away in the same way that a good Strauss art song would. <laughs> It's really astounding how he managed to capture that German sound, especially as an American. Obviously, he would have had more introduction to various different genres and types of music um, than, say, someone in the early 19th century would have. But as an American, he did this beautiful cycle in 1903 where with 25 German songs in it. Wow. Which is, I mean, just quite impressive. Mm-hmm. He was a very interesting man in that he was very active in the gay scene in New York. He was well known for uh, visiting bathhouses and he was quite active in the life there, a fact which his uh, family then did try to erase to a degree once he passed by destroying a lot of the communication that he had had with other gay men in particular. Since he did so much German repertoire, do we know if he studied in Germany? Yeah, he, I mean, he studied a little bit in Germany. In particular, he studied with Engelbert Humperdinck, who is best known for Hansel and Gretel. In my undergrad, it was done and for, to uh, quite a delight. And one day I will play that witch. I'm insistent on it. <laughs> <laughs> he has a lot of songs also in English. Obviously, he's American. We know about Lament of Ian the Proud. We also have In a Myrtle Shade. Yes, William Blake. Mm -hmm. William Blake was a very interesting man. If you don't know too much about him, he is well known for having some very difficult to interpret poetry. I have a couple of friends who are interested in the classics, and they love to look through some of his stuff and dig through his ridiculous metaphors. Um, but this actually, In a Myrtle Shade, comes from uh, William Blake's cycle of uh, love poems. It sounds very conventional as opposed to the rest of what he did, set in a way that very feels very traditional, even if it is slightly elevated above the way that a normal sort of love poem would be set.
when you said about the French influence, mm-hmm. then we get something like Symphony in Yellow. Yes, Symphony in Yellow, also worth noting, is an Oscar Wilde text. He also did uh, Four Impressions by Wilde. Um, he clearly enjoyed the uh, stylings of the man and the way that he wrote stuff. But we start to hear that sort of French Impressionism as we start wandering through the sort of whole tony sort of stuff that happens in uh, something like Symphony in Yellow, again, a piece that Ellen and I worked on before this podcast. Working in Dresden, I did a Liederabend about strong women. And the first half of it was specifically about strong women or famous women in history. The second half was all female composers. I will tell you the comments on that later because that <laughs> was very fun. Hello, patriarchy. Um, <laughs> but one of the pieces that we did on that was Cleopatra to the Asp. Mm, what a fantastic piece of music. It immediately it feels immersive like you can already feel and hear the the Nile going by it's just an absolutely gorgeous piece I feel like the the rhythmic interest in that mm. it ma- it makes it unsettled in a lot of ways like mm-hmm. you you know that something is going on mm-hmm. and you feel it's actually five against three <laughs> which is so rare and then you're singing sort of normal melodies on, or normal rhythms on top of that, but I'm playing five against three about half of the song. Is it wrong for me to say that this song is sexy? Like, oh, it's so sexy. <laughs> <laughs> this song is hot, man. <laughs> Wait, 
this song is so lit. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. That, that's my last Welcome bad joke of the season. One, people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he has done quite a body of work, especially for only having made it to 35. I mean, he quite created quite, alongside a few other things, um, works for piano, orchestra, stage works, and chamber works. He has quite a collection of vocal song literature that is worth getting into. I would be a little suspicious of some of his, perhaps, uh, some Japanese stuff that he did later, simply because I don't know that he necessarily had the uh, context to make those as faithful. But he was interested in uh, working with that particular aspect of music, and I believe he has a couple of stage works that also focused on a somewhat Japanese sound. Interesting. I mean, that is, at the, the turn of the last century was... I would say a big time for having some some cultural appropriation mm-hmm. as you know as they would yeah. discover new cultures they would they would be interested in them but they would also then appropriate things mm-hmm. I think a little more than we want to nowadays sure yeah there was a great interest in in that because it had never been open to the rest of the world so people were very intrigued about exoticism you know of exactly. that so we may have to <laughs> Forgive the sins of our forefathers. <laughs> yeah, and but but be thrilled for their interest. Yes, mm-hmm. it would have been very interesting, I think, to see where he would have continued to go with his voice, um, to see whether he would have gone into really diving into some Eastern sounds, mm-hmm. um, as would have been as many composers did at the time, or if he would have tried to stick around with his French impressionism, because it's all fairly total. All of the pieces that we're looking at are not, especially for something in the 1920s. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Very singable. It's it's exactly. not far out. Mm-hmm. That was what I was going to say. I feel like out of all of these, there there are some big things, but there's nothing that's, I want to say it's challenging, but it's not so far out of the realm of the possible. Exactly. Just like the Lament of and the Proud, the use of like uh, rhythms that fight each other, you know, between either the orchestra or the piano and the voice that sort of shows through in the rest of his work in small ways or big ways. Griffiths's works are published in many different ways, in many different volumes. You can find like five songs here, Fünf Lieder there. You can find different volumes with his songs in them. So you're going to find more piecemeal. I don't know of any overarching collection of his works, So in the show notes, we will have the links to these pieces that we have, but maybe a few extra just so you know where to get started looking. Musical clips for this episode were performed by soprano Tony Marie Palmertree, tenor Zachary Dean Smith, and pianist Ellen Rissinger, and recorded at Morningstar Studios in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Purchase information for the scores discussed in this episode are available in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find this podcast. Episodes drop every first, third, and fifth Thursday of each month. So Lit, Song Lit is a production of Cincinnati Song Initiative. You can learn more about their network of podcasts at cincinnatisonginitiative.org slash podcasts. Are you craving incredible song recitals? Are you interested in a behind-the-scenes view into professional songmaking at the highest levels of artistry? Are you looking to develop your own artistic and entrepreneurial skills as a classical musician in this ever-changing 21st century landscape? 
If you found yourself saying yes to any of those questions, look no further than Cincinnati Song Initiative's week-long program, The Fellowship of the Song. Taking place this year from May 19 through 26, The Fellowship brings together some of the country's brightest song performers and teachers for a week of classes, concerts, and study events. And we invite you to join us as an auditor, either in person in Cincinnati or online wherever you may be located. When you join the fellowship as an auditor, you gain instant access to the entire week's events and can go back and relive the magic through HD video recordings of each and every session. To learn more about this incredible new opportunity, visit CincinnatiSongInitiative.org audit.